Thank you for listening to Tales from Witchhaven. This podcast is created by Dan Lee and Rodeo Whiter and produced by Rodiax. Hello, thanks for tuning in. I'm Jackson Thorne reporting to you from JT Auto Repairs for all your motoring needs. As always, I'm joined by co-host and published author Imelda Blackwood. Thank you, Jackson. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If this is the first time you've tuned in, congratulations, you've made it. On this public access radio show, we aim to uncover all of the mysteries of our sleepy little town and expose them for what they are. A dark conspiracy? A supernatural threat from the great beyond? Or just a big misunderstanding? This week, we wanted to look into an old legend of Witchhaven. For years now, the town folk have reported hearing screams coming from the old abandoned water mill. We had gotten so used to it as a town that we didn't really think anything of it, did we? No. We all know, after living in Witchhaven, that ghosts are real. And witches, obviously. In fact, from time to time, we've had a bit of a werewolf problem. And once or twice, vampires have been known to overstep the mark. So naturally, as a town, we all thought that it was just a ghost trapped in the watermill. Maybe a spirit from a deceased worker. But lately, the spirit had seemed a bit more restless. Mrs Trelby from Babblebrook Lane, just down the way from the watermill, had reported seeing the wheel turning again. To our knowledge, that wheel hadn't turned for maybe a hundred years. So naturally, it aroused our suspicion. When Jackson called me on the phone that evening and told me what Mrs Trelby had said, I suggested going straight to the scene ourselves. So just after sunset, when the air was still heavy with the warmth of the day, we met at the path leading down to the watermill. Because it had been derelict for such a long time, the council had long since boarded up the entranceway. But after some jostling and the occasional curse, we were able to jump the fence and make our way inside. We were hoping to find something some sort of explanation for the screaming and the new activity from the water wheel. To be quite honest, I'm surprised we managed to get inside. The path leading in was really overgrown. We got in there in the end, though, didn't we? We did indeed. Now, in light of what we discovered by the end of our investigation, we're going to tell you all what it looked like in the hope that you won't try and break in yourself. We wouldn't want anyone to get hurt. Or worse. Alighting on the other side of the fence, we were able to peer through the gloom of nightfall at the wreck in front of us. The ground all around the watermill was strewn with fragments of sheer moonbeam, or so we thought, as we slowly trudged closer, trying with futility to mute our footsteps, it became clear that what littered the ground was in fact glass. Every window in the mill was shattered, leaving hollow crevices in the bowing boards of the walls. We were softly serenaded by phantom players as the babbling music of running water orchestrated our steps. The only sound was that of the river. Careful not to lose our footing and fall into the water, Imelda and I navigated our way to the door, which, to our surprise, was already unlocked. It seemed that teenagers had already made their way inside at one time or another. Entering the mill itself felt like stepping inside the ribcage of some sleeping giant, who could wake at any moment. The beams that gripped the roof were polished by age and industry, and through the fallen ceiling, moonlight shone through, accentuating their every curve. The floor was littered with fallen leaves, 
so one could not quite tell if the floor they were about to step on would give way to whatever peril lay beneath. Ancient cogs, apparently rusted to petrification, watched us silently as we explored the ruined mill. Within a couple of steps, my foot went through one of the floorboards. I wasn't injured, but it felt like even the building was trying to deter intruders. After that, we kept to the edges of the room to avoid rotten planks in the middle. We couldn't really see much. Nevertheless, we made our way round and carried on through the next room. The next room was a bit smaller and a bit better preserved. We had faith that we weren't going to fall through the floor in this room. We explored it and still we found nothing. Then we heard a knocking. We looked around, both in this room and through the door to the one that we had just come from. We couldn't see where the knocking was coming from. We thought that it must be the wind blowing the branches or something outside. And then out of the darkened corner, a door revealed itself. Was it always there or did it just materialise? We didn't know, but we did know the knocking was coming from the other side of that door. With bated breath, we began to step towards the inexplicable door, both of us treading as light as a morning cobweb, fearful of what might lie on the other side. I put my hand out to grab the doorknob and twist. As soon as my fingertips touched brass, the knocking stopped, and everything was again silent. We looked at each other, silently agreeing to open the door. Slowly I twisted the doorknob until it would twist no more. One more silent agreement before I pulled, attempting to swing it open, but it wouldn't budge. The door was locked. We did look around to see if we could find the key, but nothing. I asked Amelda to have a look in the other room for the key, so she left me searching the smaller room as she went through the door back the way we'd came. Now, I promise that door shut on its own. I know. I believe you. At first, you thought I was just trying to scare you, though. Well, if you were, it certainly worked. I promise that it had nothing to do with me. I tried to open the door dividing me and Imelda, but that one seemed to be locked too. Then I heard a click behind me, followed by a creak. Imelda was screaming and banging on the door for me to open it. At this point I wish I could, because I knew the door behind me had just swung open, completely of its own accord. I called to her to tell her that I hadn't locked it and to try and find a key. Then I slowly turned around to look at the door. Beyond it was darkness. I was expecting a ghost or something to fly out, like in a horror film. I slowly made my way towards the door and looked through. I was met with yet another empty room, this one apparently untouched by the ages of disuse. The ceiling was still intact, so the only light was shining through from the other room, but at least there were no leaves on the floor. Right in the middle of this room... I saw a photograph on the floor. I crept over to take the photo, picking it out of the puddle in the floorboard, then ran back to the door which separated Imelda and myself. I tried to turn the door handle once more, worried that I might have to kick it through, but this time it opened with no problem. If anything, it propelled itself. I was across on the other side of the room when the door opened once more. I had found an old tool chest that I supposed had belonged to the man who maintained the wheel. I wondered if the key might be found inside, but it seemed that whatever phantom resided in this ruin had taken the keys as their own. Jackson ran over to me, his face pale and hollow, 
as if he'd just seen a ghost. Thanks. Oh, you still looked fine, just a bit peaky. And anyway, he showed me the photograph and told me of the untouched room. This struck me as odd, so I asked him, if the ceiling was intact, where did the water come from? A chill went right up my spine when you said that. I wanted Jackson to show me the room, to ensure that it wasn't some trick of the ageing building. Stepping into the musty gloom, I could see that it was no trick. Throughout the rest of the mill, the floorboards lay warped and crooked, like the teeth of some hungering monster. In here, the walls were dry, the floorboards were straight, and the ceiling was certainly not leaking. Yet the puddle sat, uncanny and haunting, reflecting the moonlight as plain as night. We stared once again at the photo, trying to figure out why I had found it, or, to be more precise, why I had been led to it. I asked you, do you recognise anyone in the photo? I studied the faces of the men in the photograph, but try as I might, I couldn't recognise any of them. The eight of them stood in a cluster outside the mill, splendid in its youth. Looking at that photograph, one could almost hear the water gushing through the wheel as it turned. Regardless, I could not identify any of the men. You did recognise the sign in the background, though. Yes, the sign I definitely knew. Today it hangs inside the crooked kettle, just behind the counter. We thought that maybe the crooked kettle had bought the sign from this place when it closed down or something. That's when we noticed the cold. Yes, the cold. Creeping like silent death into our midst. Unnoticed until it began to gnaw at our very bones. It was unseasonable. I was about to ask Jackson if he felt it too, when out of the corner of my eye I caught sight of the puddle. No longer did it sit and defiantly reflect the moonlight. Instead, its surface was clouded, a dull sheet of ice. We had to get out of there. There was no way we were going to stay in there any longer. The damp patches on the walls started to freeze, and we could see our breath, lit by the moon. We ran outside, down the overgrown path, and just as we got to the gate at the bottom, we heard the most horrible screaming coming from inside the mill. It pierced the night in bone-chilling torrents. A gust of crows shot up from the trees, and joined in shrieking chorus. We turned and looked back at the mill, stunned by the sheer sadness of those lamenting shrieks, as if all joy had been ripped from a tattered world, leaving nothing but piercing heartache. And there, in the window, staring out at us, was the woman whose voice we heard. Her hair clung to her face in lank streaks, black as pitch, each strand slick, as if drenched in a thick, viscous liquid. As she continued to shriek, Never stopping to catch her breath, her features contorted into uncanny shapes. Eyes spilling down her face as if overwhelmed by a sheer, uncomprehensible horror. Her mouth was a pit of torment, stretching and stretching as if the sounds it released were clawing to get out. Needless to say, we ran. Our heads were throbbing by the time we jumped the fence, and there was a horrible ringing in my ears. My skull felt like it had tightened or split or something. After that experience, neither of us felt like being on our own, so we spent the night at mine. I should inform our listeners, nothing untoward happened. I've I've spent many nights at Jackson's. Uh, what, I, what I mean to say is... What you mean to say is that we're friends and my sofa has your name on it. Quite. Thank you. No problem. Well, the next day, I decided to shut down the garage. 
I would like to apologise to Stephen again. Sorry about the slight delay, but hey, we still had your car ready for the fishing trip. So, you know, a tip wouldn't hurt. I'm sure Stephen doesn't mind. He's an avid listener. He'll understand. Well, the first point of call was a crooked kettle. If they could tell us anything, it would be helpful. And given that they have that sign hanging behind the counter, we figured they should know something. In theory. So we decided to pay them a visit for our morning coffee. As usual, a hush descended when I entered. It is common knowledge that the written word possesses power. But no matter how much I tell them, they simply won't believe that I'm just an innocent novelist. And just because no one in this town reads my books doesn't mean that they don't sell elsewhere. In fact, I'd like to point out that... So we entered the Crooked Kettle? Right, yes. We entered the Crooked Kettle and made a beeline for the counter. Natalie Simmons was working that day, and while she was brewing our beverages, I nonchalantly dropped the question. I asked her where they got the sign. Nat told me that Susan, who owns the Crooked Kettle, had received it as a gift from her grandmother several years ago, which posed more questions than it did answers. Why did Susan's grandmother have it? Who was Susan's grandmother? Was she still alive? And could she offer any clue as to what spectre haunted the old mill? We drank our coffee and decided what to do next. Susan wasn't in the cafe that morning. She wouldn't be in until the afternoon, so we resolved to speak to her later. I suggested we look up any old records that might help us solve the case, so we decided that when we'd finished our coffee, we would go to the library. But fate had a different plan in mind. Before we could make our way to the library, Jackson caught sight of a newspaper, neatly folded on a neighbouring table. And on the cover of that newspaper was the harrowing headline, Death at the Witchhaven Watermill. Seeing this sent a chill down my spine. The threat was real. We knew there had been more activity over the past few days, but there had never been a death attributed to the mill. At least not from what we could remember. After consulting the abandoned paper, we found out that it was Archie Feathers that had died at the mill that night, some time after we had left. He had no known health problems, but was found with pools of blood dripping from his ears and eyes, and an expression of pain on his face. I knew Archie really well. He used to own the sweet shop when I was a kid. The one on Cobblestone Grange? That's the one. Well, there still hasn't been any official statement released as to what killed poor Archie, but, dear listeners... I'm sure you will have your own theories by the time tonight's tale is at a close. We knew it was pointless heading over to the mill now. There would be police, the press, the grieving relatives, who our thoughts continually go out to. Not to mention the crowds of bystanders watching as well. Right. So we needed to find some old records to get some information on this place and find out what made the ghost so very restless. The library seemed like a pretty good place to start. That's right. We made our way down to the Witchhaven Library and Mrs Spink helped us to pull some useful tidbits from the records. Within the folds of those pages, we found that the mill had closed 99 years and 350 days ago. At the time of its closure, seven men worked there, the eighth having drowned in a tragic accident as he attempted to fix the wheel. After that, the wheel was never fixed and the mill fell into disuse. The man's name was Charles Griffin, and we read that he was not born in Witchhaven. He came here from the city to work, with a view of moving his family over once he had saved enough to build a house. And that's when the room started to spin. 
I had no idea what was happening. Suddenly Imelda started to sway and her eyes rolled back into her head. You know, I thought you were having a fit or something. Well, perhaps I was. Somehow, that name, Charles Griffin, resonated inside my skull and sent cold prickles of electricity running down my spine. The world around me blurred and faded from focus, replaced instead by a sepia haze. Somehow, some way beyond my comprehension, I fell into that haze and it engulfed me, stirring in the air and settling into the form of an entire room around me. I was standing in an old living room. It was very small and very plainly furnished. A fire roared in the hearth, and I could hear it crackling. I could actually feel it warming my face. Beside the fire sat a time-warm armchair, and in it was a man I can only presume to be Charles Griffin himself. On his lap was his daughter, a tiny thing of no more than two or three. He was rocking her and singing to her, some old folk song. I didn't recognise it, and somehow the words had lost all meaning by the time they reached my ears. He sung with a gentle Irish lilt to his voice, and something told me that this song was very old indeed. All of a sudden, I could hear Jackson calling my name, and feel him pulling at my arms. The sepia realm dissipated around me, and I was back in the library, being shaken vigorously by Jackson. Sorry about that. It's quite all right. It was a startling experience. I was glad to be back in the library when you pulled me out. Imelda told me what she had seen, and it suddenly clicked in my head. What if the little girl in the vision had moved to Witchhaven after all? And what if she had been given the sign when the mill closed? It suddenly made sense. What if Susan's grandmother, who had given her sign to hang in the crooked kettle, what if she was Charles Griffin's daughter? We left the library immediately. If this was true, it was very likely that Susan's grandmother held the missing piece of the puzzle. If, of course, she was still alive. We hightailed it back to the crooked kettle and demanded that we speak to Susan. Of course, it, it had only been a few short hours since we had left, and poor Natalie seemed quite taken aback. In hindsight, I would probably react the same if two people ran into my work and demanded to speak to the manager. In any case, while we were scaring Natalie, Susan strolled into the cafe through the front door, completely oblivious to the scene unfolding at the counter. Natalie pointed us in her direction, and we immediately went over to talk to her. After some convincing... And after the two of us had calmed down enough to talk sense... We got Susan to sit down with us and talk. When we told her what was going on, she was very perplexed. She told us that, yes, her great-grandfather was Charles Griffin, and yes, he had worked at the mill at one point. Her grandmother, Maeve Griffin, was his daughter. But the reason Maeve had moved to Witchhaven 80 years ago was to try to find Charles. According to her, he had left her and her mother in the city and ran off, never to be seen again. All this time, Maeve Griffin had thought that her father had simply upped and left her. So we told Susan what we'd read at the library. She was shocked. At this point, we wondered if the ghostly woman screaming at the mill was Susan's grandmother. But she wasn't because Maeve Griffin is still very much alive, and Susan agreed to take us to meet her. If the mill was not haunted by Maeve Griffin, who was the woman we'd seen? It took me a moment to work it out. Charles had died there almost a hundred years ago, and all this time, his only daughter had never known. His singing was what gave it away. He was Irish, so naturally it made sense that Irish folkways would apply to him. It was not a ghost that haunted the mill, 
It was not some restless spirit exacting revenge upon the townsfolk. It was something entirely different. It was a banshee. For the last hundred years, that banshee had been wailing in the mill every night. Traditionally, a banshee screams to warn people of a death in the family. But Maeve Griffin had never heard the banshee cries, and she had never found out that her father had died. And now, coming up to a century of screaming, the banshee was getting restless. That's why the wheel had started turning. And when poor old Archie Feathers had wandered into the mill, probably to tell her to shut up so he could get some sleep, he had met his grisly end. We had to set it right. So we went with Susan to meet Maeve. We explained everything to her, and let her know our theory of what haunted the Witchhaven watermill. At first she didn't believe us, but when we showed her the records of her father's death, she began to accept that we were deadly serious. We took her up to the old mill once night had fallen. Of course, the fence had been broken down by the police. No one was there, but there was yellow tape around the whole area. We watched the river flow past the abandoned mill and waited for the inevitable. Once the last rays of daylight had dropped below the horizon, the water began to freeze, and with trepidation we opened the door. And there she stood, that same woman we saw last night. The Banshee. But this time she wasn't screaming. She looked peaceful. Her face wasn't twisted like it was the night before. She completely ignored Imelda and I. She just kept looking at Maeve. Jackson and I stood on either side of the frail woman, for fear that she would fall. We both looked at her, expecting to see an expression of fear etched across her countenance. But instead, Maeve's features held no clue as to what she was feeling. Her eyes were glassy in quality, her face relaxed in a mask of mystery. Then I think we must have blacked out for a moment, because neither of us can recall what happened next. But when we came to, still standing in that same position, either side of Maeve, the spectre's face had softened into a radiant smile, and as she dissolved into the ether, Maeve was smiling back, tears streaming down her face. Afterwards, we spoke to Maeve, and all she said was this. She now knows what happened to her father. We asked her if the spirit had left, and she said that it had. It was now at peace. The people of Babblebrook Lane can sleep soundly in their beds once more. As always, we have a few community announcements. Archie Feather's funeral is tomorrow, with the wake being held at the Purple Frog. The entire town is invited. Arthur McGregor has notified me that for the second week running, the book club has fallen on Friday the 13th. So again, it will be moved to a Thursday. And Mrs Clitheroe's Bakery has started preparing the Halloween bread again. So just be a bit careful when going down to the river in the evenings. And in regards to the vandalism on my car, pack it in, I'm getting tired of it. We are once again coming up to the witching hour. So we will wish you well and leave you. But remember, if you hear any screams in the night, they may not all be as they seem. Thank you for listening to Tales from Witchhaven. This podcast was brought to you from the minds of Dan Lee and Rodeo Writer, produced by Rodiax. If you have enjoyed your stay, please like, subscribe and follow us as we explore more mysteries from this sleepy little town. Beware, the witching hour draws near. <laughs>